Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be covering the case of Sierra Lamar in Morgan Hill, California. Let's get right to it. Sierra May Lamar was born on October 19, 1996, in Fremont, California. According to the San Jose Mercury News, she spent most of her life there in Fremont, eventually attending Washington High School where she was a cheerleader and involved in competitive dance. She had a ton of friends and her friends recalled that Sierra had a unique ability of making everyone around her laugh. In the fall of 2001, Sierra's parents separated, and Sierra and her mom moved from Fremont to Morgan Hill. While Morgan Hill was only roughly an hour south of Fremont, it was a world away. Fremont was a fairly large city. There was always plenty to do and see. Morgan Hill, on the other hand, was much smaller, more rural, and surrounded with orchards and farmland. Sierra, her mom Marlene, and her mother's boyfriend Rick moved into a ranch-style home in a rural neighborhood on Paquito, Espana Court. The cul-de-sac was pretty much in the middle of nowhere, surrounded mostly by fields. Due to the move, Sierra had to transfer schools and leave her friends behind at Washington High. Having just completed her freshman year, this wasn't exactly something she was very happy about. Those teenage years are tough, and starting over at a new high school was intimidating. But it didn't take long before Sierra started making new friends. However, she still missed her old school and Fremont. Despite the distance, Sierra remained close to her old friends as she began her sophomore year at her new school. According to court documents, Friday, March 16, 2012 started out like any other routine school day. Sierra's mother Marlene was headed out the door around 6 that morning on her way to work. Her at-the-time boyfriend Rick had already left the house. Before Marlene left, she saw Sierra, who had just gotten up and was starting to get ready for school. 
Marlene hugged Sierra, told her she loved her, handed her lunch money, and headed out the door. Sierra always rode the bus to school, and her bus stop was within walking distance from the house. Rick and Marlene would leave for work, Sierra would get dressed, and roughly an hour and a half later, she would walk down to the bus stop. Sierra rode the bus to and from school and was always either back at the house or waiting at the bus stop when her mom got home from work. But according to the San Francisco Gate, when Marlene got off work at 3.45 p.m., she began calling Sierra to check in with her like she always did as she drove to their home in Morgan Hill. But Sierra didn't answer, and when she got home, she wasn't there. So she contacted the school, and that's when she found that Sierra had never made it to school that day. Marlene called Sierra's father, Steve, back in Fremont, but he hadn't heard from their daughter all day either. As Steve headed down to help look for her, Marlene began calling Sierra's sister, friends, parents of friends, and Sierra, hoping Sierra would answer or that someone had heard from her, but no one had. With each phone call, Marlene became more and more frantic. This wasn't like Sierra. It wasn't like her to ditch school and she always had her phone on her and was in constant communication with her family and friends. At this point, she felt something was very wrong. Marlene called 911 between 5.30 and 6 p.m. that evening to report Sierra missing. Initially, police thought it was possible Sierra had simply gone off on her own accord. Maybe she was upset due to the huge changes in her life, her parents separating, the big move, and maybe she was just with a friend and she'd come back home. I mean, it happens all the time, and there was no disturbance at the house. There was nothing to indicate at that point that there was any foul play. Officers responded to Sierra's home the evening of the 16th, but an official missing persons report was not taken. However, as the hours ticked on with still no word from her, the police began to take her disappearance more seriously. The following morning, March 17th, Sierra Lamar was officially entered into the system as a missing person. Officers searched the area around her home and began interviewing all of her friends. One of her friends told detectives that Sierra actually had mentioned running away before. She was struggling with the move and wanted to be back with her old friends. While everyone was hopeful that this was the case, not all of her friends and certainly not her family bought it because in the unlikely scenario that Sierra had simply walked away, she wouldn't have shut down communication with everyone she knew and loved. And besides, she was a 15-year-old girl. She liked posting on social media, especially Facebook and Twitter but her social media had gone dark. Sierra's last post was around 7 a.m. on the morning of the 16th. She posted a selfie after she had gotten dressed for school. In the photo, she was wearing a black San Jose shark sweatshirt. This was extremely important because Marlene wasn't sure what Sierra had been wearing at the time she disappeared. When she had left that morning, Sierra was just waking up and at the time still in her pajamas. She hadn't yet got dressed for school. But in the selfie, Sierra had her makeup on, her hair done, and was dressed as if she was ready to head out the door. In the photo, Sierra was smiling. She appeared happy, and it didn't seem like the photo one would take if they were planning on running away. 
Detectives also discovered that a few minutes after snapping the selfie at 7.11 a.m., Sierra was texting back and forth with a classmate, and the two of them made plans to meet up at school before class to compare homework and share some makeup. Now, Sierra normally left the house by 7.15 a.m. and walked about a half a mile from her door to the bus stop. And this wasn't a bus stop like you're thinking. There was no bench, no marker, no group of kids waiting together. It was practically in the middle of nowhere, at the intersection of Doherty and Palm Avenue, right outside the cul-de-sac where they lived. Sierra was the only student who got on and off the bus at that stop. The bus typically arrived to pick her up by 7.24 a.m., but on the morning of the 16th, Sierra wasn't waiting at the bus stop when it got there. Investigators took a look at the surveillance video from inside and outside the bus that morning, hoping to maybe catch a glimpse of her or anyone who might have been at the bus stop. But Sierra nor anyone else was seen. The bus stop was completely empty. At this point, investigators suspected it was likely that Sierra had been abducted. There was such a small window of time. They knew she was dressed, ready, and had plans for school that day, and likely headed out the door to wait for the bus when she sent that last text message. Again, that last message was sent at 7.11, and by 7.24, she had vanished. Police launched a wide-scale search around the home. The media began to spread the word that a 15-year-old girl was missing from their small Morgan Hill community, and volunteers soon joined in on the search. At the same time, according to court documents, investigators contacted Verizon Wireless and asked them to conduct an emergency ping of Sierra's phone. They did, and they found something incredible. At 3.45 a.m. that Saturday morning, her phone started turning on for quick intervals. Quick, but long enough for the phone to make contact with the tower. They were able to determine that the phone's last known location was in the area of Santa Teresa Boulevard and Scheller Road, about half a mile north of her home, but in the opposite direction of the route she would have taken to walk to her bus stop. A team of searchers headed to that area and located Sierra's cell phone, but Sierra was nowhere to be found. The phone was found on the side of Scheller Road in a large open field with tall grass, about 25 feet from the roadway. It had rained that previous night and the phone was wet. This detail would become very important later because as it turned out, the reason the phone had briefly powered back on, according to later expert testimony, was due to moisture in the phone, likely near the charging port, which for a lack of better words, tricked the phone into thinking it was being plugged into charge and caused it to cycle on and off all by itself. This didn't mean Sierra had actually powered the phone on, and further, none of the hundreds of messages sent to Sierra by concerned family and friends had been opened. And of course, no messages or calls had been made from the phone. At this point, though everyone tried their best to cling to hope that Sierra would be found unharmed, there was little doubt in anyone's mind that something horrible had happened. Sierra would have never ditched her phone like that. As police and volunteers continued to search, According to an episode of See No Evil detailing Sierra's case, 
20 two-man teams of officers made contact with the roughly 250 registered sex offenders in the five-mile radius of the Lamar's home, and they were able to clear all of them. At the same time, Sierra's father, Steve Lamar, contacted detectives and voluntarily told them that he himself was a registered sex offender and had been convicted in 2009 of lewd and lascivious acts with a child under 14 years of age, for which he served about a year in jail. Steve wanted to let them know so that no time was wasted looking at him, and police quickly eliminated him as a suspect. It was confirmed that he was at work at the time Sierra disappeared. News of Steve's prior conviction would soon hit the media, and once again, Steve came out and made a public statement admitting that he was a registered sex offender and had disclosed this to the police immediately. He went on to say, I understand the stigma associated with this in my background, and I assure everyone it is not connected in any way to my daughter's disappearance. I ask that you please not shift the focus away from the investigation and from finding Sierra. I also ask that you please not let my past shape your opinion of Sierra or anyone in our family. Please understand I am a dad and I want nothing more than to find my missing daughter. And it seemed to have worked, with the police also stating that he wasn't being considered as a suspect, the focus seemed to shift back to where it needed to be, and that was on Sierra. The following day, Sunday, March 18th, the search continued and it wasn't long before they found something else. According to the Gilroy Dispatch, at around 1 p.m., Sierra's black, juicy brand bag and pink purse were found in a rural area about a mile from where her phone had been located and only two miles from her house. The bag and purse were hidden behind some bushes near a building, one of three on the property that were all being used at the time for storage. All of the things Sierra would have taken to school that day were found either in the bag or purse, including her textbooks and notebooks, her makeup, house keys, asthma inhaler, and the lunch money her mom had given her the morning she disappeared. And inside the black bag, investigators found the same San Jose Shark sweatshirt Sierra had been wearing when she snapped that last selfie, a pair of jeans, a pair of shoes, socks, underwear, and a bra. According to court documents, the clothing had been neatly folded and placed inside the bag. While it was all neatly folded, the clothing had what appeared to be dirt and debris on it. It was swabbed for DNA, and while investigators waited on results, they called in an expert in the form of a botanist to examine the dirt and debris. The botanist determined that there was a distinctive form of lichen found on her clothing. According to live science, lichens are actually two organisms, usually one species of fungus and one to two species of algae that function as a single stable unit. Worldwide, there are about 17,000 different species, but the specific type that was found on Sierra's clothing was common to the area from which she vanished, but only found near bodies of water. In addition to the lichen, the botanist identified a type of seed that was also only found near aquatic environments. And there was one more thing. According to later court testimony, the back of the pants and the shark sweatshirt were covered with dirt in a pattern that suggested someone had dragged Sierra by her feet with her back on the ground. 
And further, among the dirt, investigators also found small glass beads mixed in. These glass beads are the kind used to create reflective markings for roads. The beads are applied over the paint on roadway markings to make them more reflective and visible at night. Investigators theorized that the presence of those tiny glass beads further suggested that Sierra had been abducted on her short walk from her home to her bus stop. As investigators waited on DNA results from her clothing to come back, the lichen and seeds found suggested that after she had been abducted, she had been taken near a body of water. So the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office called in every resource and every piece of equipment they could find to search every body of water in the vicinity to try and locate Sierra. As the Sheriff's Office called in dog teams, the FBI, and just about anybody they could to search. Sierra's family held vigils, still holding onto a shred of hope that somehow, some way, Sierra was still alive and they'd be able to bring her home. The communities of both Fremont, Morgan Hill, and the surrounding areas came together to support Sierra's family and join in on the search. Sierra Lamar quickly became known as everyone's daughter because she was. She was a 15-year-old girl who hugged her mom, grabbed her lunch money, before heading off to catch the bus to school like so many other teenagers that very same morning. Only Sierra never made it to her bus stop, a bus stop that was only a half a mile and less than a 10-minute walk away. How could something like this happen in the small picturesque community of Morgan Hill? Who would have taken her? It was such a small window of time. Did Sierra know her abductor or had someone been watching? On March 28, 2012, the DNA results were in. Not only was it revealed that semen was present on Sierra's genes, investigators had a name and a match. The DNA belonged to 21-year-old Anselin Garcia-Torres. And at the age of 21, Anselin Garcia-Torres had already racked up quite the, shall we say, interesting arrest record. According to police records obtained by the Gilroy Dispatch, he had been arrested in 2009 after Morgan Hill Police attempted to conduct a probation compliance check on Anselin's at-the-time roommate, Augustin Chavez. As three officers approached the home, another man, Jared DeSalvo, who just so happened to be wanted for felony domestic abuse, spotted the officers and ran inside the house. Officers followed, and once inside, Anselin Garcia-Torres came out of nowhere, screaming, Get out of my house, you fucking pigs! Get the fuck out! As he screamed, according to deputies, he, quote, postured as if he wanted to physically fight with us. An officer told Garcia-Torres to get the hell out of the way so they could make an arrest, and he blocked the officer's path and continued to walk towards him in a threatening manner. The cop grabbed his arms, placed him in a wrist lock, and attempted to escort him outside, and he continued to resist. Eventually, he was placed in cuffs, but remained combative. Officers located DeSalvo, the man who had ran into the house at the side of them. He was found in a back bedroom bathtub and taken into custody as well. The man police were actually looking for that day was not located, but I guess two out of three ain't bad. Anyhow, Anselin Garcia-Torres was arrested for obstruction 
of a police officer and taken to jail, where more charges would be added because as he sat in a holding cell at the Morgan Hill Police Department awaiting transport to the main jail, he stuffed an entire roll of toilet paper down the toilet until it was about to overflow. When asked to remove it, Garcia Torres did and said he tried to flood the cell because he was bored. His boredom continued, so he then removed his shorts and used the metal rivets on them to etch I seen it on the bench inside the cell. After police saw what he had written, he said he was sorry and requested to write an apology letter. He wrote, I'm sorry for what I did by writing I seen it on the seat. I was there for a long time and I didn't know what to do. I got bored in there. Anselin was charged with vandalism of a jailhouse cell. He later waived his right to an attorney and chose to represent himself in court. He was found guilty, but both crimes were misdemeanors, and he wound up serving five days in jail. About a year later, Anselin was charged with felony battery, resulting in serious bodily injury. Apparently, Garcia Torres got frustrated after his sister and her friend, who had been renting a home his mother owned, didn't move out quick enough so he grabbed an air conditioning unit from the house and threw it through one of the windows. He then told his sister and her roommate that they had two hours to get out. The roommate asked for more time, and Garcia Torres replied, Get the fuck out. You're pissing me off, according to the police report. He then punched the roommate and a fight broke out. The roommate suffered a laceration that required multiple stitches and nausea and vomiting. My best guess would be due to a concussion, although the records don't expressly state that. Garcia Torres explained to police that he wanted them out because he had a baby on the way and, quote, didn't want no tweakers around. It was discovered by police during this altercation that Torres had, quote, unlawful sexual intercourse with a person under the age of 18 who was less than three years younger than him. Because at the time this all went down, police found a teenage girl living in the home who was pregnant with Anselin's second child. But apparently, the pair had gotten married sometime after the birth of their first child, who was by this time 20 months old. Garcia Torres was arrested and charged with felony battery with serious injury and unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor. However, he was later convicted of a lesser misdemeanor charge of simple battery and the unlawful sexual intercourse with a minor charge was dropped. But according to police reports, since Garcia Torres was initially charged with felonies, his DNA was taken because of this arrest and entered into CODIS, which of course is how they were able to make the match. While police might have been somewhat familiar with Anselin Garcia Torres, his name was new in relation to Sierra Lamar's disappearance but he quickly became the prime suspect, although they didn't just run out and make an arrest. Instead, according to Lieutenant Julian Quinones of the Santa Clara Sheriff's Office as he spoke out on See No Evil, they immediately set up 24-hour surveillance of Anselin Garcia Torres. A tracker was placed on his vehicle, his phone was tapped, and two officers posing as a couple actually moved into an RV in the same Maple Leaf RV park Garcia Torres was currently living in, so they could have eyes and ears on him at all times. If this dude blinked, it was noted by police, all in hopes that if he was still holding Sierra somewhere, he would lead them to her. 
As they watched, investigators also pulled surveillance video from the RV park gate the morning Sierra vanished. At first, it seemed the surveillance actually ruled Anselin out because it showed him leaving the RV park in his red 1998 Volkswagen Jetta with a black hood at 8 o'clock a.m. This would mean Anselin would have still been at home at the time Sierra was abducted. However, detectives soon realized that the camera hadn't been adjusted after daylight savings time, and the timestamp was one hour off. Anselin Garcia Torres had actually left the Maple Leaf RV park at 7 a.m. The drive to the bus stop was roughly between 10 to 15 minutes, which would place him near where Sierra was at precisely the time she was abducted. And further, his time cards showed that he had never gone to work that day. Anselin didn't return to the RV park until nearly six hours later, around 12.57 p.m. Detectives were more convinced than ever that they had their man. For six days, they quietly watched and followed Anselin, hoping he would return to the scene, but he never did. That's when they decided it was time to pay him a visit to see if they could ruffle his feathers a little bit. Investigators went to his home in the Maple Leaf RV park, and from the jump, Anselin was cocky and rude. When asked if he had any relationship with 15-year-old Sierra, he responded, I doubt it. Why? I doubt it? What the hell kind of answer was that? He went on to claim that the first time he had seen her was on the news when she was reported missing. Detectives said nothing about the DNA or how his name had been brought up in relation to a missing teen in the first place, and apparently, he didn't question it too deeply. But at this point, they didn't press him. They had what they came for. Garcia Torres had denied ever coming into contact with Sierra. So then how in the hell was his DNA found on her clothing? For three more days, investigators watched, but Anselin just carried on as usual. Detectives decided they couldn't wait any longer, so they brought him in for a formal interview. During the interview, he told them that he had left the Maple Leaf RV park at around 7 a.m. the morning of March 16th went by Live Oak, and then turned down on Palm Avenue. He had just put himself at the crime scene at the exact moment Sierra Lamar had been abducted, just as detectives theorized. Garcia Torres then went on to claim that he had gone fishing and then went by the Bank of America to cash a check. He denied any involvement in Sierra's disappearance and when asked if there was any reason his DNA would be found on Sierra's clothing, the story he chose to tell made about as much sense as a screen door on a submarine. But I had to listen to it, and now so do you. He kicked things off by saying, I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, but I do masturbate in my car. He went on to explain that he enjoys masturbating in his car and always keeps napkins handy, so he doesn't have to get anything on him, so he just cleans himself up with the napkins and tosses them out the window. I mean, we're just out here throwing semen out the window. That napkin must have caught a ride on a tumbleweed and somehow made contact with Sierra, a teenage girl he didn't know and had never met. As you can imagine, investigators didn't buy it. 
And while Garcia Torres sat in the interview room and told this fantastical tale, they served a search warrant on his home and seized his vehicle. As evidence seized from the home and Garcia Torres's vehicle was being processed, police went to the Bank of America and were able to verify that he had gone to the bank the day Sierra Lamar vanished at around 12.53 p.m., just prior to returning home, and he had cashed his check just as he said he did. He was captured on surveillance at the bank wearing a dark t-shirt and boots. And the camera captured something else. The bottom of his pants appeared to be darker than the top, as if the bottom of his pants were soaking wet. Were they wet from fishing, or had he been near the same body of water it appeared Sierra Lamar had? Investigators also knew that Garcia Torres was employed at a local Safeway supermarket, and that got them to thinking. You see, a couple of years prior, there were three attempted abductions at two separate Safeways in Morgan Hill. Antolin Garcia Torres had worked at one of the Safeways even back then, and those cases were all still unsolved. Police pulled up the composite sketch of the suspect, and it had a striking resemblance to none other than Antolin Garcia Torres. According to NBC, all incidents happened over a two-week period in March of 2009. Three women were all attacked in the parking lot of the Safeway at night. The attacker entered their vehicles and attempted to abduct them. None of the women knew their attacker and the attacks seemed to be completely random. During one of the incidents, the victim was tased with a stun gun. According to her, she felt as if she had been tased about five times. She managed to get away and her attacker dropped the weapon. It was recovered by police and a partial print was lifted from the battery inside the stun gun. Initially, since it was only a partial print, it was unable to be entered in the automated system to be ran through any databases, but could be compared to a specific print if investigators ever had their sights on a suspect. And now they did. When they compared it, lo and behold, the print was a match to the left thumbprint of Anselin Garcia Torres. It wasn't long before forensic test results came back from Anselin's red 1998 VW Jetta with the black hood. And the results were damning. Sierra Lamar's DNA had been found on the inside rear door handle of the car and on a set of gloves. But that wasn't all. A strand of Sierra's hair was found on a rope in the trunk of the Jetta. And with that, on May 21st, 2012, Anselin Garcia Torres was arrested at the Safeway grocery store and the Tenant Station shopping center. 66 days after Sierra Lamar vanished, her body yet to be recovered, and Garcia Torres was charged with kidnapping and first-degree murder. His response to his arrest was, really? Garcia Torres was later charged with three counts of attempted kidnapping in relation to the Safeway attacks as well. Sierra's parents made public statements to Anselin, pleading with him to tell them where their daughter's body was so that they could properly lay her to rest. But like the coward he is, Anselin continued to deny his involvement in Sierra's disappearance and entered a plea of not guilty. 
As he sat in jail awaiting trial, Sierra's family and many volunteers, including Mark Class, founder of Class Kids, searched for Sierra for three long years. According to search organizers, the search for Sierra was the longest continuous search in U.S. history. Volunteers conducted more than 1,130 searches in a 15-mile radius from the site of Sierra's home for a combined 50,000 man-hours of search time. On March 14, 2015, Sierra's family and many of those volunteers gathered for one final search after they made the decision based on expert advice to stop leading a search every week as they had done for those three years. But that didn't mean they were giving up. And if a new lead came in or a new location, they were going to be right back out there searching. Sierra's mother, Marlene Lamar, told ABC7 News, Just because weekly searches are temporarily suspended, we will never give up the mission to find Sierra Lamar. After multiple delays, almost five years after Sierra Lamar disappeared, the trial finally began on January 30, 2017, and the state was seeking the death penalty. Prosecutor David Boyd started his opening statement out saying, Sierra Lamar is dead, and that man killed her, as he gestured toward Anselin Garcia Torres. The prosecutor then laid out the DNA evidence, the prior abductions, the fingerprint on the stun gun, and walked the jury through the investigation, which we've been over. There were over a hundred witnesses, many of them forensic experts who painstakingly explained everything in detail, and how they not only believed that Sierra Lamar was no longer alive, but that Anselin Garcia Torres had murdered her. Many of Sierra's family members and friends testified that she was happy despite the challenges of her parents' separation and that she would have never willingly left. The defense attempted to poke holes in every piece of evidence the prosecution presented, like the fact that none of the three kidnapping victims were able to pick Garcia Torres out of a lineup. They suggested it was possible Sierra's hair found on the rope and Garcia Torres's trunk could have been due to contamination by crime scene investigators or even planted by police, and that it was possible Sierra had turned her phone on and off repeatedly from the middle of the field after she had gone missing. Their theory was that Sierra was unhappy with her life in Morgan Hill, so she just walked away from everything and everyone she knew and loved. And this theory centered around a note that had been found in Sierra's Spanish notebook shortly after her disappearance. The note had been found by a student who turned it over to administrators at the school. What student? School administrators couldn't recall. The note read, I hate my life. Whoever's sees this, I will be in San Francisco by 31612. The defense claimed this was proof that Sierra had left on her own. However, when it was time for cross-examination, handwriting analyst John Burke testified that the handwriting didn't match Sierra's and that she, quote, probably did not write this note. And since handwriting analysis isn't an exact science, probably is about as certain as you're going to get an expert to testify to. 
That little two-line note referencing running away was the only note jotted down in the notebook that wasn't school-related. And further, Sierra's Spanish teacher testified that she didn't monitor which students took which notebooks from the stack kept in class, meaning any of the students could have had access to the notebook. And the first day back following Sierra's disappearance, she was out of the classroom and there was a substitute teacher filling in. There was no way to know who had written the note or when. The prosecution completely dismissed the note as nothing more than a cruel joke, and they were able to all but destroy Garcia Torres's defense. It didn't make a lick of sense. I mean, to buy into it, you'd have to believe investigators picked this guy randomly and decided to frame him for an abduction that they claim never happened. The trial lasted four months, but it only took the jury about 10 hours to find Anselin Garcia Torres guilty on all counts. On May 9, 2017, Garcia Torres was found guilty of first-degree murder and three counts of kidnapping, and he was facing the death penalty. A week after the verdict was read, everyone was back in the courtroom for the penalty phase. The prosecution drove home the fact that Garcia Torres deserved no mercy because he had shown none to Sierra Lamar and still refused to show mercy towards her family, refusing to reveal the location of Sierra's body. The defense attempted to gain sympathy by bringing up a tumultuous family history, stating that Garcia Torres witnessed his alcoholic father abusing his mother while growing up and that as a child he was exposed to toxic pesticides. On June 5, 2017, the jury delivered its final verdict, choosing to spare Anselin Garcia Torres the death penalty, and instead he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Members of Sierra Lamar's family chose to address Garcia Torres from the witness box so that they could look him in the face as they spoke. Her mother Marlene stated, I find it incomprehensible to commit a heinous violent crime. You caused great pain to our family and yours. You have robbed Sierra of what God had planned for her. You can choose to make a choice and repent and tell us where she is. I think about her all of the time and what's been taken from me as a mother. Anselin Garcia Torres will remain behind bars for the rest of his life. To this day, the body of Sierra Lamar has never been found, but her family and the community continue to search. Sierra May Lamar was 15 years old with her whole life ahead of her. She loved all things hair and makeup, her cat named Chester, and her red high-top Converse sneakers. It's been over 10 years since Sierra was taken away, but she has never been forgotten. Once a year, her friends, who were just young teens themselves, when Sierra vanished, get together to remember their friend. The one with the bright smile who had a unique way of making everyone around her laugh. If you have any information about Sierra's case, contact the Santa Clara County Sheriff's Office tip line at 1-408-808-4431 or your local FBI office. As always, you can find more information on this case on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcasts. 
I'll be bringing you an all new episode next Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.